0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. Elias and I have something in common. The first words of Torah we ever read from the Torah were from Parshat because My bar mitzvah was this parsha, you know, a couple years ago. <laughs> and in my shul in Connecticut, they divided the triennial reading slight, somewhat differently. So the maftir aliyah that Elias read was the last few verses of the seventh aliyah that he read. In my shul in Connecticut, the maftir, the last aliyah that the bar mitzvah boy read, were the last few verses of the entire parsha, which wasn't read in its entirety that morning. And when I was training for my bar mitzvah all those years ago, that's what I started with. Because I knew I was going to read the maftir and then pull backwards to read as much as possible, not nearly as much as Elias did this morning. Which means that the first words of Torah that I ever learned to chant were the last few verses of Parshat Bamidbar. And it's sort of strange to say, but also wonderful because we're always learning in life. I don't think I ever understood those verses until this week. The first verse I ever read, I knew a little bit of Hebrew at the time, so I had a basic sense, but I don't think I really understood the impact of those words and what they mean in Jewish life and Jewish expression, until I came back to them this week when I was studying the Parsha. The Parsha ends as it begins to tell the instructions of the sons of Levi that were divided into several groups and the responsibility they had to transport the Mishkan, the portable sanctuary, from place to place as the Israelites wandered through the desert. And it may sound obvious to say, not only were they responsible for reconstructing that building, that sanctuary, every place they went, and traveling with it in between, they were also responsible for deconstructing it. If you're going to build something that's movable, you have to unbuild it first every single time, which means that these children of priests, who were the the functionaries of the spiritual life of ancient Israel have a job of packing and unpacking, building and breaking down. And the Torah says something very severe, specifically about the breaking down part, the unpacking part. The Torah says, Al tahritu at Let not the Kohatites as one of the sub tribes of Levi, let them not be destroyed from the rest of their tribe. Why would they be destroyed? Zota Sulahem, do this for them. v'lo-yamutu, so that they will live and not die. The Gishtam at Kodesh Hakodashim, when they come close to the Holy of Holies in order to start breaking it down to prepare it for transport. Aharonva vau Aaron and his sons will come. The ish ish el- v'al-masao, and place each of those people in the positions that they have been assigned in this job of breaking down the mishkan. They should not watch while the ark is uncovered and broken down to be packed up, for if they do, they will die. Now the Torah is filled with punishments that seem more severe for the transgression than we would think in the modern sense of society. But this is pretty brutal. They are tasked with the responsibility of transporting this holy object, this holy room, this holy appurtenances to the Mishkan. And they can't even look when the parochet is taken off the aron kodesh, and when the holy of holies is expo- exposed, and if they do, they will die. There are two main thrusts of opinion in the Midrashic and the medieval commentaries as to why. One of them is it's too hot. It's too nuclear. You're not allowed to look into the face of God. And this is where the face of God is most present in the world. So almost you know, think Waiters of the Lost Ark, you have to like avert your eyes because there's something too intense about the spiritual capacity of that object. And if they look at it, they will die because it'll be too much. I prefer the second interpretation, offered by several people, including the Ibn Ezra, who was a great Spanish medieval grammarian and commentary. He says the problem is not that it's too sacred for them. It's that if they watch the sacred in the act of being broken down into the mundane, it will lose its sanctity. And they'll start looking at the tabernacle as a prop something they have to do as part of their daily obligations rather than this fully constructed home for God. The tabernacle does have to be transported, but it has to be done somehow preserving the sanctity of it so that the people's reverence for it will not be diminished. I want you to know that I never really thought about that as I read those verses before. And on some level, as I understand it, because as a rabbi and as a functionary in the synagogue, on the one hand, I'm involved with the Sefer Torah for its most sacred purposes, when it's brought out with great fanfare and read with love and reverence. And sometimes I'm transporting it from room to room. And sometimes I go into the sanctuary, or my chorni goes in the sanctuary the day before to make sure it's rolled to the right place. We open the ark, we don't sing by heaven even saw so our own, and we take it out of the table, we're not saying any blessings, and we're checking and we're rolling it. And in those moments, not because we wanted to, because this is human nature, it's possible for the holiest object in our tradition to become something much less, momentarily. I know and I get that uh, when families are coming to celebrate their Bar Bar Mitzvah and they come for rehearsal, and they took pictures and the pictures are lovely and I'm so happy I have pictures from my bar mitzvah and I'm so happy that all of you all have pictures from your kids b'nai mitzvah. And sometimes when the Torah comes out of the ark for a photo op, it makes me a little sad that the object which is supposed to be the focus of so much sanctified attention is sometimes, quote unquote, just the thing that's held in a picture. A picture which we're gonna be glad to have afterwards. But is there some diminution of the sanctity when we allow ourselves to be so casual with it? That's Ibn Ezra's concern on this verse. What's fascinating is, and I learned this from a colleague, Rabbi Aviva Richman, who is a rabbi at the Hadar Institute in New York, that this law changed throughout Israelite history. This was the law in the desert when the Mishkan was new and when they were just beginning to figure out how to relate to the sanctified things in the world. But, according to the following source in the Talmud, once the temple stood permanently in Jerusalem, and it had become for centuries a regular part of the Israelite practice and Israelite worship, the relationship between the uh, most sanctified part of the temple and the Israelites, the Jews of the time, changed. Amar Rav Katina, Rabbi Katina said this is in Masechet Yoma, the Tractate of Talmud dealing with, mostly with Yoma Kippurim. olin Laregel, when Israelites would come and make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, specifically for the three Yantifs, Lahemata they would come into the of holies and the Kohanim would pull back the curtain and allow them to see the very thing that even the Kohanim's children were allowed to see in the desert. Lahem they would show them the cherubs, those kuvim, those cherubs that were on top of the ark, that would flank the doors to the ark. Shehayum Zebaze, that they were kind of in, uh, next to one another and in, illuminating one another. The Umrim and the Israelites, the Jews would say to them, Zahar Look at these cherubs, these inanimate beings angel-like structures flanking the ark, behold, how much you love in front of the Holy One, like the love between a man and a woman. It's an entirely different message. In the desert was the message don't get too close because if you get too close it will no longer nearly be as special. There's some distance required in things of sanctity. And once the temple stood in Jerusalem, it was the opposite. You've come to pay a visit to the Temple of Jerusalem? Come. Come as close in as you can, even up to the point where the cherubs are expressing love for each other, inanimate love, in front of God. How wonderful that you can see how everything works in the Mishkan. It went from a concern lest by seeing how the sausage is made, as it were, you no longer want to eat the meal, to inviting people to come in as close as possible so they could be intimate with the most important aspect of Jewish expression and prayer. According to Rabbi Rabbi Richman, this has to do with what happens when relationship and love matures. In the beginning, whether your relationship is with the something sacred or one another, there is coyness, there is flirtation, There's a sense that not everything is exposed to one another, because if you expose everything to one another, then there's nothing hidden, there's no mystery, some of the spark is gone. And at some point, after years and decades of love and marriage and relationship with a synagogue, you see everything. Nothing is hidden. On some level, that's extraordinary that you can get that close to a person and that get that close to an idea. And on some level, something is missing. Something dies a little bit at that stage and therefore needs a certain amount of the original approach approach in order for the beauty and the specialness to be reawakened. When I gave the title for this Dvar Torah in the email that went out, I was speaking about the Mishkan and also speaking about the synagogue in Skopje, North Macedonia where 38 members of our community were, uh, not for Shabbat, but about two weeks ago as we were on our shul trip to the Balkans. We had a phenomenal 12-day trip to Bulgaria, northern Greece, and the country of North Macedonia, one of the seven countries that was once Yugoslavia. It was a fascinating learning experience. It was a lot of fun, too, because it was a vacation on the road, but also a tremendous trip uh, learning new things about Balkan Jewish life, Uh, and their experience in the Shoah and the Holocaust, things that, frankly, even educated Jews who grew up in an Ashkenazi world focusing on Russia, Poland, and Ukraine know very little about when it comes to their experience in the Shoah, and I put myself in that category. I studied, essentially, Holocaust history throughout most of college, and I knew nothing of these stories. The Jews of North Macedonia, at the time it was simply called Macedonia, were almost entirely uh, exterminated in the Shoah The remnants were very, very few. Many, many, many more Jews, first of all, started out living in Poland, Russia, and Ukraine, and in in Holland than before, uh, than in Macedonia. But in a significantly higher percentage of the Jews that ever lived in those cities, in Skopje, in Bitola, and in several other cities, uh, very few of them survived because of the way in which the Shoah took place in that part of the world. Skopje, which is now the capital of North Macedonia, was never a Warsaw, it was never a New York, it was never a Moscow when it comes to Jewish life. But it was not a nothing either. There were several shuls, there were newspapers, there were theater troops, there was a vibrant, pulsing Jewish life that in 1939 no one could have imagined was going anywhere. After the war, there was almost nothing. There was much more in Poland after the war than in Macedonia. And the last couple of decades, the few Jews that have sort of either known they were Jewish this entire time or have come to realize it because a grandmother on her deathbed told a grandchild, by the way, I held this from you for all these years because I didn't know what it was going to be like to be Jewish in this part of the world. You're Jewish. There's been a slight reawakening, and there is now, in addition to a fabulous Holocaust museum commemorating the story of the Balkan Jews and the Macedonian Jewish experience in the Shoah, there is a small shul in Skopje. It's in a nondescript apartment block in a nondescript neighborhood on the second floor of a random building. They've put together space to sort of look like a sanctuary. So emotional was to see their parochet. Their parochet, the thing covering their Aron kodesh, was the last kind of sanctuary object that was dedicated in the Skopje Jewish community before the decimation. Some family had a wedding or an anniversary or something, because you can see written on the parochet. And as a way of celebrating this particular simcha in the family, they dedicated a new parochet for the shul. I forgot the exact date. Something, something, 1941. They had no idea, of course, that they were rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, as it were. They were dedicating new sacred objects for a Jewish community they figured will always be there. Somehow that object remained and is now gracing the Ark in this makeshift um, new, new and renewed Jewish community in Skopje. They count about 200 members of their community, of whom about 60 are Jewish because nearly all the people who are Jewish in that community are married to those who are not Jewish. And the numbers of people who kind of consider themselves to be part of the extended community are kind of friends and neighbors who want to support the notion of a a renewed Jewish community. There are only about 60 or 65 Jews left in the city. We were hosted by two of the board members of the Skopje Jewish community. What was fascinating to watch in them is that we felt more comfortable in their sanctuary than they did. They're so new to this. To them, to walk into a sanctuary is a mighty, mighty thing. Because for decades, there wasn't any. When we sang, shalom for us, it was a ditty. They wept to hear Hebrew songs being sung by Jews in the city again. They are, on some level, living like the generation of the Israelites in the desert. They're not comfortable peeking in too close. This is all new and raw and tender and delicate and so very holy. There's no moment of Jewish life that takes place in Skopje without a tremendous amount of input and um, investment. And so every one of those moments is pregnant with tremendous sacred meaning. We, and I have no romantic image of trading places with them, But we live such a Jewish life in Los Angeles that is so free, so open, so rich, so easy on some level that too many of our moments we take for granted. Too many of our moments were at the era that we've talked about in the Talmud where you're coming to visit, come on in, see everything, nothing is blocked from you. We have gained so much, I'd rather be a Jew, and almost every Jew would rather be a Jew in Los Angeles than in the reborn Jewish community of Skopje. But I wonder what of their innocence and their sense of awe and their sense that this all could go away and this sense of preciousness we should import to our spiritual lives, we should import to our dealings with the synagogue, with the sanctuary, with the bima, and with the Torah? And what does it take to go back in time in relationship with a loved one, whether a loved one is a spouse, or a friend, or a shul, or a god, or a Torah, and approach it with the full sense of how rare, how delicate, and how precious it all really is?